All right, as you're opening up, we're in 1 John chapter 3. I'll just say I, I hope all drew encouragement from last week's sermon. Um, if you weren't here, if you didn't hear it, uh, jump on Spotify, listen to it again. Uh, if you were here and you did hear it, jump on Spotify and let's do it again. It definitely uh, sheds light on um, our fallen world. Uh, and then also us as Christians are our, our, our part in being a, a light into the world and holding up the, the truths uh, that are the only truth, which is the truth of Scripture. So, uh, This morning we are going to go verse 4 through 10. I know that sounds... That's a lot of verses. I don't usually go that many verses. Uh, but we're going to focus primarily on, on 4 through 7. Uh, but we're going to keep this, this passage together in its entirety, 4 through 7. So in 1 John chapter 3, starting from verse 4, again, take heed of the perfect inerrant word of God as I read this morning. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your, your written word that you have given us. Father, I pray this morning as, as we go through your word that, that the truths of, of your scripture that just stands out like a, a beacon of light and presses upon our hearts and let your spirit seals them upon our hearts as we leave this morning and, and go out throughout this week that, that we use the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to bring glory and honor to you. Father, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so John here, he starts out with this need for deliverance. He shows us our need for deliverance. And so he uses here, just in these first three verses, four through six, he uses the word sinning in the Greek, armatia. In the context of it, He's speaking of this ongoing sin, this habitual sin. He uses the language like practicing of sin. And so that word, harmatia, the word that comes through to our, our English, sin, it simply means missing the mark. It's missing the mark. Uh, in illustration of like an archer, uh, we have a few that do archery in here. It, the goal is to hit the bullseye. Right? And every time you miss the bullseye, it's missing the mark. The goal is the bullseye. The goal is, is, is perfection, hitting that bullseye every time. And when we do, it's, it's, when we miss it, it's simply missing the mark. We're missing the perfection 
that they were trying to accomplish. And so here in, in, in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So when it comes to missing the mark, when it comes to, to sin, uh, what does it tell us? When we fall short, what does that tell us? It tells us our need for deliverance, our desperate need for a deliverer. Because man is sinful, he has transgressed the law, he's fallen short of God's glorious standard. And here's the reality, in the, the day we live, in the society we live, few people like to be called sinners. And that's timeless, actually. But few people like to be called sinners. Nobody enjoys being called a sinner. Uh, the reason for it is this, is that most people, uh, when they sin, or most people think of sin as only the, the, the gross, egregious sins that end up on the news or end up on social media feeds and things like that. Now, that's what most people see as sin. Only those type of egregious acts that make the headlines. Sins committed by most people are not thought of to be just that serious. Most people think that uh, what little wrong they do could never be interpreted as sin against God or falling short of God's glorious standard. So to them, only, they're only committing these things that they like to change the language and say, it's just a mistake, it's a shortcoming, a failure, a bad decision. Or like to pawn it off on others. For instance, well, it's a family sin. I can't help it. My, my dad was this way, so I'm just going to be this way as well. Or my kids, they're not perfectly obedient. If they were perfectly obedient, I, w- I wouldn't get angry. I wouldn't lose my temper if they were perfectly obedient. There's my wife. She causes me to sin. It's, it's the, the woman mine has given me. That card was dealt way back in Genesis, and it was dealt way back to Adam. That's the, the postmodern Christianity. Diluting the, the gravity and the weight of sin. Or pawning it off on, on, as the fault of others. It's not what sin is. Not, not to God. Sin is any transgression of the law. It's violating the law of God. Sin is choosing to go one's own path versus doing the things in which the Lord has commanded. Sin is living by the desire of the flesh versus living by the Spirit. Sin is ignoring God and and neglecting God instead of following and and worshiping Him as He says. Sin is rebelling against God instead of doing as He says. And note this, that God is perfect. There's no spot, no blemish in Him. And because he is perfect, because he, he is without spot and without blemish, completely pure, completely righteous, 
no imperfect standard could flow from him. Therefore, no, only, only perfection is acceptable to him. That's the shocking, that's the shock and awe of the gospel right there. That should be shocking to people. Knowing that, that there's this perfect standard and only perfect perfection is acceptable to God. That's the shock and awe that one must first come to in order to see, begin to see and comprehend the, the beautiful, glorious gospel and the glorious grace and mercy in which also flows from this perfect God. It's understanding that if God lets anything less than perfection into his presence, then his presence would no longer be perfect. Heaven would no longer be perfect. Therefore, God can never accept anything other than perfection. This is what sin is. It's imperfection. Sin is imperfection. It's falling short. It's coming short of God's glorious standard. It's coming short of the the perfect nature of God. As Romans 3, Paul states there, speaking of, of the state of man ever since the fall. Ever since the fall. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's the state of man. That's when like Paul says, by, we're children of wrath by nature. It's the natural state of man. And, and the wages of this, the wages of sin, the wages of our iniquity is death. That's trifle. That is uh, physical death. That is spiritual death. That is eternal death. And the, the, the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, is, is upon every man at moment of conception. Born into the sins of Adam. This is the great issue of man. And the question that every person must ask him or herself is, is what can I do? What am I to do? What, what can I do to resolve this issue of knowing that God only accepts perfection? Yet when we look at ourselves in the mirror, if we look at it, ourselves in the mirror through the, the, the lens of God's perfect standard, we fall short. What can we do to resolve this issue? The short answer is Nothing. It's nothing. There, there's nothing a man can do to redeem himself. But the glorious news, the glorious news is that it, it is finished. It is done. It has been accomplished. The breaking of the bondage of sin has been accomplished. The great eternal transaction between the Father and the Son has been redeemed. The salvation, the adoption, the justification of God's people 
has been purchased, purchased through the precious blood of the Lamb. Look here at verse 5. So he gives us the need for deliverance there in verse 4. The state of man. The lawlessness, the practicing of sin. And in verse 5, he says, you know. It starts out with a you know. In the Greek, that, that word, every time you see that, you know, it's, it's indicating here, John here is indicating that this is Christianity 101. It's like, you know these things. He says, you know that he appeared in order to make, or in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sins. There it is. There's the provision for deliverance. Jesus. Jesus Christ, the, the, the Son of God, came to earth to take away the sins of his people. Born of a virgin, which is key, so that he not be conceived into the sins of Adam, like the rest of mankind. Born truly man, without spot, without blemish, truly God, therefore him being able to be both the just and the justifier. The hyperstatic union, the God-man, the eternal Son of God in human flesh. He appeared. He appeared in human flesh. How is it possible? How is it possible uh, for Christ to actually remove sins and, and take them away so that we are seen acceptable to God? First off, by, by living a sinless life. Christ being perfect, without spot, without blemish. Note the words of the verse there at the end. He says, in him there is no sin. There is no sin. When Christ came to earth as a man, he, he lived a sinless life. He, he was the, the, the perfect embodiment of righteousness, perfection. He secured the perfect righteousness. He was the perfect Adam. Adam fall, fell short. Christ did not. He's the perfect Adam who in every respect, every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what does this mean? Well, simply this. When Jesus died, his death was the perfect, perfect once and for all sacrifice for sins. He was the perfect man, so he was able to die as the perfect sacrifice. God was able to accept his death as the perfect payment for sins. What happened is this, as, as R.C. Sproul liked to, to say, is that on that cross, the, the double imputation occurred. The sins of all his people were imputed to him as Christ's righteousness was imputed to his people. It's a glorious, glorious truth. His robes for mine. His, his, his perfect robes of righteousness for our dirty, filthy rags. God counts the sacrifice of Jesus for us. God no longer sees our sins for, for Christ took them when he died and casted them as far as the east is from the west. They are thereby removed. Removed from his people. And we are counted free of sin. 
the bondage has been broken. They're gone forever because Christ took them upon himself. He died for them. He was buried and rose again. It was the fulfillment of, of the Day of Atonement scapegoat. And the high priest would lay the hands on the scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness as a picture of the sins being taken away into the wilderness. Taken away, removed. Right? That yearly act of that Day of Atonement, that picture foreshadowing Christ. Which is the very reason why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, what did he say? Behold, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? He's foreshadowing. He's thinking back to the, the, the Day of Atonement and seeing there's the beautiful sacrifice. That is the, the embodiment of righteousness. That is the once and for all sacrifice. It's exactly what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament with the scapegoat. side thought here. This is the great love. This is the great love of God. This is the great love that we read about in John 3.16. The giving of his son to die for the sins of the undeserving. And when a person comes to, to grips with this glorious news, that person bows in humble adoration before their Lord. And John here, he as I've been articulating, as we've been going through here, this letter, he gives you a series of tests. And this here is another one. This is the test of our love for God here in this passage. Have we turned from sin and turned towards God's Son? This is what John articulates here in verse 6. The mark of a, of, a, of a true Christian. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And if you, if you haven't quite figured out yet, John here in this letter is continuously articulating that there is proof of deliverance. There is assurance in salvation. When the work of Jesus is, is imputed into a person, uh, that person's changed. That person has an encounter with the, the sovereign God, the creator of all things, that person is changed. And they begin to abide in him, to, to dwell, to continue, to stay, to sojourn, to take up a residency, to rest in Christ, to live and move and have their being in Christ. Look here in this passage. John, he, kind of, he goes back and forth here and shows us these, these markers of uh, a true believer versus a, a false convert. Uh, look here in verse 3. Speaking of those who are truly in Christ, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Second half of verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 9, 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And look at the other side of the coin. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Second half of 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The last half of 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it gives us these markers of a true Christian in in an unbeliever or a false convert. And note three points here to this. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Is Is that a contradiction there, John? Is he contradicting himself and what we've already went through as we've already read through 1 John, specifically verse 10 of the first chapter. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Or if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Is he pulling here for, for perfectionism? No. He's speaking of the, the continuous practice of sin, the habitual practice of sin. Christ paid such an enormous price to take away our sins. It would be a discredit to his sacrifice if one continues practicing sin, lavishing in sin. The desire of of a child of God is is not to walk in sin, but to turn away from sin and to, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. John here, what he's articulating is this is proof of whether or not we love God. Whether one has been born again. One cannot be born again and have zero change in the way they move and have their being. This would be a complete discredit to the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Of the regeneration of the heart. Of the broken bondage of sin. Secondly, he says here, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The Greek there means this, again, as I have already articulated, the continuing in sin, the habitual sin. To go on practicing sin day in and day out, do we really know Christ? A true believer is still short of God's glorious standard. He still sins. He's still in human flesh. Therefore, he cannot keep from sinning, not all the time, not perfectly. But sin is no longer the dominant theme of his life. Think of a motion picture, thousands of of, of frames of a motion picture. If you were to sit down and look at that motion picture from the time in which someone comes to saving faith, What is the dominant theme of that motion picture? Sure, there's going to be frames of sins, frames where we fall far short of God's glorious standard. We see that example of David falling short of God's glorious standard in a pretty egregious sin, that of adultery, that of uh, conspiring to murder. Moses not following the instructions of the Lord can even bring death. You see that in Ananias and Sapphira. That one 
frame. But what's the theme? What's the theme of that motion picture? The Christian does not keep his mind on the on the comforts and on the pleasures and of the possessions of the of this life, this world. And his focus is on Christ. His focus is on, on Christ's mission of righteousness, his mission of salvation. He gives of him, himself, he gives all he is, all he has, to reach the people for Christ. And to be a light unto a dark world. He works, he labors, and he keeps on working and laboring for Christ. He endures to the end. But note the opposite. person whose focus is still on the world, focus still on the pleasures of the world, the possessions of the world, person who continues, as John says here, practicing sin. That person has not seen Christ or known him. Once a person sees Christ, and I'm not saying physically see Christ, there will be a day where we'll see, physically see Christ. But, but spiritually speaking here, one has a spiritual encounter with the creator of the universe. A person's focus shifts, it changes. The old man is dead. The new is alive in Christ. How can it not be? He turns away from sin, turns to following their Savior, their Lord, their Master, their King. He abides in Christ. He lives and moves and has his being in Christ. Last thing to note here is John, John here, he's combating an antinomian ideology, which just means no law. We have twin heresies that we deal with in, in our society in the, the umbrella of Christianity, and that is antinomianism. No law. Do whatever. Live, eat, die, be married today. And you have the other side of the coin, which is legalism. You're posing upon things that are not commands from Scripture. Pressing that upon people. Here, John's dealing with the, the antinomian ideology and today, so many are deceived about the matter of sin and the matter of righteousness. The New Age progressive Christianity is more concerned with filling seats, more concerned with entertainment than they are with sound doctrine and seeking holiness. And many in our society are, are deceived and thinking that they are saved and acceptable to God because they have professed Christ. Matthew 7.23 says otherwise. A profession does not simply save anybody. He says there will be many on that day who will profess his name, but he will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Many believe they are saved and acceptable to God because they have been baptized. As Simon the magician, Peter says, may your gold and, per- gold and silver perish with you. Simon was baptized. 
Many believe because they have joined a church, attended church, fellowshiped with Christians. Judas would say otherwise. Read the Bible, prayed. These are all good things. None of which save anybody. I think if they're doing these things, they can, they can live the way they want to. If they just check the boxes, they are free to lavish in the desires of the flesh. I think that they can go on and enjoy a few more and more things of the, the, the world's pleasures to continue to seek them more and more. Seek the world's comforts, the world's possessions. I think that God will accept them based on box checking. But note verse 7 here. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Key phrase there, as he is righteous. As he is righteous. Going back to the issue of man, how can one be deemed righteous? only by the righteous blood of the Lamb. Only by the righteous blood of the Lamb. And so the, the luminary effect of those who follow Christ is that they follow after the righteousness of Christ. So today, brothers and sisters, Christian soldiers, remember the words of our Lord. That if anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. When the truth is revealed to a person by the power of the Holy Spirit, that person sees and understands for the very first time the magnitude and the weightiness of their sins. For the first time, they understand the gravity of hell for those who are not in Christ. They see for the very first time, and they, they run to their Savior, they cling to His righteousness, to His perfection, falling before the, the mercy seat of God. And for the first time, truly understanding the, the richness of His mercy, the richness of His grace, for the first time seeing the eternal hope that is only found in Christ. So today, beloved, we, we, we may... As if we may live and have our being in that hope. Live and have our being in that hope. Maybe, maybe we love one another more and more because of that hope. May we raise godly children because of that hope. May we seek godly relationships because of that hope. May we labor in steadfast love because of that hope. And knowing that Jesus died for us even while we were still lawless sinners. Knowing that truth, let us with urgency go forth and warn the, the, the lawless of this world. Warn them of their status before a holy and just God. And telling them of the great Savior, the great Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And may we sacrifice all in order to carry forth that glorious message of salvation from sin, salvation from death, salvation from judgment to come. Maybe partake in communion because of that hope. As we partake in communion, we do so in remembrance of Christ, 
and breaking the bondages of sin in our lives. Being that once and for all perfect sacrifice. Knowing that we fall short and there is nothing that we could do, but yet he provided the sacrificial lamb. So when we eat of the bread, remembering remembering of, of his body, broken by, by the weight of sin, as the Father poured out his wrath upon him, in our steed, in our place. As we drink of the juice, remembering the perfect blood of the Lamb being shed for the sins of an undeserving people. And as we do so, partaking in communion, remembering the great hope, the great hope, the great promise that he's going to return, he's going to bring each and every one of his people to completion. And there will be a great day when we will be like him and that of completely purged of sin. We'll see him for who he truly is, see his glory magnifying before our eyes, a great day where we'll all collectively together sing a new song. Don't know what that song will be, but I cannot wait. So as we approach the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table this morning, let's reflect. Reflect on that perfect sacrifice that we could not be, but he has provided for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the perfect sacrifice of your son, Jesus. For taking away the sins of, of all his people, breaking the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray as we partake in communion this morning that you set aside these, these elements, bless these elements of the bread and juice, set it aside for a holy use. That as we partake, that we do so through uh, pure hearts, pure minds, contrite hearts, joyous hearts, and knowing that it's only through the blood and the body of your Son that we are made perfect before you. That you now see the, the robes of righteousness of your Son wrapped around us that our iniquities are cast as far as the east is from the west. Father, we thank you so much for that sacrifice. We pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.